0: Good morning Northbridge. It is a joy to be with you this morning, um, to be in God's Word together. I'm so excited to, to speak today. We're in Philippians, and uh, we're going to dive into this letter that Paul wrote. I'm not much of a public speaker. I haven't done this a whole lot, but Timothy three sixteen and 17 says, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work." So I know that no matter what, if nothing else, if we read scripture today, this will have been useful. So we're in this letter to the Philippians. In some context, while Paul's in prison, he writes to the saints, the overseers, and the deacons, the whole church, who he knows deeply in Philippi. I love the story of the Philippian church for several reasons. For starters, the first saint in Philippi was named Lydia, and (laughs) I guess you all know already. Uh, Fun detail, because I married Lydia. Lydia, in this story, she was a seller of purple goods, and she was a worshiper of God, which my wife does here at Northbridge as well. So just a fun detail. Um, The story of how the church started is really a beautiful one. If you don't know it, uh, Luke writes about it in Acts chapter 16. The other reason I have a fondness for this book is that it was the words in this letter that God used to soften my heart and save me about 10 years ago. And I knew this might happen. Technology doesn't do well with me, so I'm going to switch. Maybe it'll work. Oh, it'll work. All right. So, all that to say, I'm super excited to be with you today. Um, Today we're in Philippians 3, 12 through 16. But first, I want to pray before we begin. God, I want to thank you so much for this time. You are mighty and awesome. Your word is so rich, and there's so much wisdom in every single verse. Help us to understand your commands. God, I ask that you speak through my imperfect words today and work in our hearts. Amen. Well, when I was about 12 years old, my family took a trip down to Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. From where we lived in New Jersey, it was about a 12-hour car trip uh, from start to finish. Well, as we were driving, we realized we had this opportunity to actually uh, take a route through the outer banks in North Carolina. So after eight hours, we finally got there, and when we parked, my brother and I went straight for the beach. And I'll, I'll never forget that day on the beach, um, because that morning, a small hurricane had actually come in. And so this caused the waves to be higher than our heads and, and viciously rough. And even though the sky was dark and gray and it was raining, we were two boys that had been kept in a car for eight hours. So naturally, we had to go in anyway. So we did. We jumped in and we swam out. Um, But quickly, those waves, they gobbled us up and the tide started ripping us out pretty far. So we started swimming and doing everything we could to get back to shore. And finally, we scraped ourselves back onto that sand. And I remember spitting out salt water and looking at each other and saying, we cannot go back and swim in that. But we had to do something, so we came up with a game. And the game was simple. We had to go up into the water, up to our knees, and just try and stand in one place. That's how rough it was. The waves would sweep out our legs, and then we'd get back up and try and stand in that place for as long as we could. It was a fun, simple game. Well, anyway, that night we drove uh, on, and we drove out of the hurricane and into South Carolina. And the next day, it was a beautiful, sunny day. So again, we went straight for the beach. And as we looked out, it was a totally different scene. The waves were almost non-existent. There was one here or there, but that was it. It was almost like a lake. So we went out and we swam. And uh, we got to the point where we could tread water. That's what we always like to do. We started talking about what careers we might have one day, or how he hates fish, or our trip. Um, this, this, that, and the other thing. Um, so anyway, a couple hours later, we started looking at the shore, and we tried to find our stuff, and we realized we couldn't see it. We then looked further, and we couldn't even see our hotel. This was an entirely different section of beach. We then realized we had drifted a good two miles down the coast. (laughs) Needless to say, we learned a valuable lesson about undertow that day. So question, what went wrong here? What went wrong? We didn't have a goal. So why do I tell you this story? Because in the text we're studying today, Paul is concerned about the importance of our goal. He doesn't want to see the church drift. In fact, next week we'll find out that he's brought to tears just thinking about those who don't stay true to the goal. Both in the time that it was written and today, the current and the tides of culture are strong. The world offers countless avenues for distraction. So let's see what this passage has to say. Philippians 12, uh, sorry, Philippians 3, 12 through 16 says this, Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call in God, of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. This section is really rich. There is so much in it, and as I studied it, I found more and more connections to other parts of the Bible. But We're gonna study three main themes, and they're these. The goal of the Christian, the motivation of the Christian, in the assurance of the Christian, we're going to go through this section by section. The first being verses twelve and half of thirteen. It says, "Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus had made has made me His own. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own." So, what is Paul talking about when he says, "Not that I have already already obtained this"? What is the this that he's referring to? It would be pretty hard to understand this without going back to the verses previous to it. So let's go back, starting in verses 8, Philippians 3, 8. It says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead." And then he says, not that I have already obtained this, or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. So the this that Paul is referring to is knowing Christ. It's gaining Christ. It's this full righteousness. It's sharing in Christ's suffering, becoming like him in his death and resurrecting from the dead. In short, the goal is to imitate Jesus. He says it again in verse 14. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. Matthew 16, 24 says, then Jesus told the disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. The call of Jesus is a lifelong commitment to imitating him. So now that we've answered the this that he's referring to, we can get to the motivation of Paul in this letter. He says, not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own. I want you to note that he takes special effort to say not twice. Not that I have already obtained this. I do not consider that I've made it my own. He desperately wants the church to know that he isn't enough on his own. He's restating a concept explained in verses 4 through 7. Joel taught on this a couple weeks ago, and it was an excellent time in the Word. Paul is saying, here are my credentials to get into heaven. This is my pride. This is my purpose. This is where I put all of my effort. And he takes this list, and he crumples it up. He says, this is trash. Why is that? I mean, think about that. Why does he do that? because a list doesn't do you any good if you're dead. If your tombstone read these details that Joel mentioned last or two weeks ago and said something like John Smith was dedicated as an infant in the church, raised in a Christian family, and regularly attended a Bible-believing church, but did not say John Smith believed in Jesus and followed him, all that effort would be for nothing. The Egyptians used to bury their dead with all kinds of gold and valuable things, but if you were to go back to that body in a week, would it still be dead? Of course. So when Paul says, not that I have already obtained this or I'm already perfect, he's saying, I have not obtained righteousness on my own. I haven't figured out a way to prove myself into heaven. And he's saying, sorry, I've got to keep my place here. <laughs> he's saying, if anyone could, it would be Paul. If you consider things like an accountant, Paul is saying, I thought I had all these assets, but now I look, and they're actually liabilities. So make your list, Paul says. Let's flush this out. People want to use their works as leverage over each other to say I'm better than you. He says, OK, start writing. What qualifies you to get into heaven? Here's my list, and it's actually way better than yours. But Guess what? I don't consider it anything. I want us all to take a moment and write that mental list. Think about all the good things you've done and try and balance it against the sin in our lives without Christ. Are any of us making it into heaven? My list didn't pan out either. There's something valuable for us to sit in that uncomfort for a moment, to know that our list doesn't make it. If we don't grasp our desperate need for Jesus, all of our accomplishments are for nothing. And that's a profound truth that ought to resonate with us deeply. A.W. Tozer says it this way, what comes to mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So Paul throws out this list. Why? Not because it's necessarily insignificant, but because knowing Christ is far more valuable. He wants to know Christ, to be a part of his sufferings, and to reunite with Christ after death. And that list wasn't going to get him there. So he says, no, I'm not perfect. I haven't achieved righteousness or resurrection, but I press on to make it my own. And why? This is where the motivation really comes in. He says, because Christ has made me his own. That's it. That one reason. It's not that Christ made me his own, and if I do these things, I'll look better, and maybe people will be proud of me. I can start telling people I'm right and they're wrong and use this as a way to do that. He's saying, I haven't arrived. I am not perfect. I haven't made it on my own. But next he says, but one thing I do, verse 13, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. A pause. Why does Paul say to forget what lies behind? The word remember appears in the Bible hundreds of times. That's not an exaggeration. There's this reoccurring problem throughout the Bible That God saves his people, the Israelites, right? But then they move on. They forget. God gives them up to their sin. And then they cry out, God, we need saving. And so what does he do? He does. He saves them in mighty ways. But then they move on and they forget. God obviously knows the heart of man way more than us. And so all throughout the Bible, there are these commands to remember. I'm going to read off a bunch, but don't feel like you have to flip to each one Um, because I'm going to move quickly. Deuteronomy 6.12 says this, Take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Isaiah 46.9 says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. 1 Corinthians 11.2 says, Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. Psalm 77:11 says, "I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old." Ephesians 2:12 says, "Remember that you were at one that at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus of Christ." I mean, even in this very book, in chapter 1, verse 3, Paul says, I thank God in all of my remembrance of you. So why now does Paul say, forget what lies behind? Are we to start thinking that this is a contradiction in the text? This is where context is really helpful, because in the previous verses, we learned about Paul's life before Christ, all these credentials that he had, but what we didn't talk about Was how much material comfort he had in that life. He had status, he had money, he had influence, he had nice clothes, he had power. He was really high up. I want you to take a moment and imagine the people in Paul's circles, how his peers started probably whispering, saying, Man, this guy used to be somebody. He was a top tier Pharisee. Now look at him, he's in prison relying on others to provide for him? Look how life turned out for that guy. What a shame. Can any of you relate to this? Is it ever tempting to say, man, I used to have a lot of fun before I dedicated my life to God? Maybe you have an old friend who tells you you're lame for not going out and getting drunk with them, or you start to question your decisions when you watch other people make money their religion and their life looks so comfortable and that house is so nice. Maybe you're tired of putting so much effort into Parenting your kids biblically, and you start to think, man, why don't I just let my kids do what they want? Maybe you were saved when you were young, and now you start to wonder, what would life be like if I didn't follow Christ? I could do what I want. I could date as many people as I wanted. I could spend my time how I wanted. I I wouldn't be looked at as maybe prude or outdated or even hateful, modern culture might say. Paul is telling the Philippians, man, forget that stuff. Block it out of your mind. Forget the earthly comforts of a sinful life. Don't be fooled by Satan. Your life is a thousand percent better because of Jesus. In fact, you wouldn't even have life without him. So Paul says, because Christ has made me his own, right? How was the Philippian church started? Paul and Silas are in prison, worshiping, and they're singing and reciting God's word. They have this pep in their step. Why? Because God might have because the Romans might have the keys to the prison, but God has made the whole earth, and Christ broke the chains off sin and death already. So what's there to fear for them? This is how their perspective changes. It's no longer, those were the good old days. I used to do whatever I wanted as a Christian. No. Now it's, I was lost. I was purposeless, going nowhere. But what? But Christ gave me life in joy and an eternal inheritance. So now we say, where you say to go, I will go. We forget the distractions of our past life, and we strain forward to the mission that God has called us to. The Israelites made this mistake of focusing on the past. Even though they had been freed from slavery by countless miracles, they changed the story in their heads. They started thinking, man, life was actually kind of good when I was a slave. And they asked to be taken back, to be slaves in Egypt again, convincing themselves that life was just much better then. And like Cole said last week, a whole generation died in the desert because of it. Another way this is stated is in Luke chapter 9, in verse 61. I'll pause if you want to turn there. It says, Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord. Again, sorry, this is Luke chapter 9, 61, if you missed it the first time. I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now you might be thinking, Isn't that a little harsh? Can't he just go back and say goodbye? But let's keep in mind that this is Jesus. These are the words... That are divine. This man encounters Jesus during the last days of his ministry. He meets God himself walking on earth, and he says, I'll follow you, but can you wait till I'm ready? Jesus is saying, if you come face to face with the maker of the universe, your savior, and your mind is still on your past life, you don't understand the magnitude of knowing God. Don't we do this? Hey God, thanks for saving me, but I actually had some things I was planning on doing and I was right in the middle of something, but as soon as I make it through my bucket list, I will totally follow you. We trick ourselves into thinking our carnal life life, was worth something. Don't be fooled. Forget what lies behind. Strain toward what lies ahead. Paul writes, Remembering what Christ has done for him and the wonderful inheritance set for him but forgetting those earthly comforts. Next, we notice in this that there's this releasing and there's a grasping here. We are in one action to forget our past distractions and strain forward to what God has called us to. This is extremely active language, and that is no accident. The words in this section are strain and press. You think about the word strain, and it's used to describe unusually great effort, or to stretch to an extreme degree. This is difficult work. The Olympics are a fantastic example of this. These people are so focused on this goal, to win this medal, that they do everything they can to get there. They wake up at strange hours in the night to train. They're measuring their food in grams or ounces. I I don't even know what that's like. They're shaving their legs so that one little hair doesn't slow them down through the wind and through the water. I remember we had an event for the middle schoolers and high schoolers. And at the end, we had ice cream. As leaders, we were like high-fiving each other. This is a slam dunk because everybody loves ice cream, right? I remember as the table was just packed full and all the kids were waiting for their ice cream, I looked across the room and I saw um, Aiden and Donovan Goodwin and they didn't look excited at all. In a way, they almost looked disappointed. And I thought, this isn't right. My kids should be excited about ice cream. So I walked over um, to them, and I was like, hey, the ice cream's free. You can go for it, you know. And they went on to explain to me that they actually cut out sugar for the whole month with their cross-country team because they had meat coming up, and they were just that dedicated to the goal. I remember thinking, I love it. What a great example of this. Jesus gave us the ultimate example of this focus he knew he would be on earth for a limited amount of time, and he lived every day in submission to the Father as a living sacrifice. The next we have assurance in this passage. Is Paul worried that the church won't grasp this? Let's look at verse 15. It says, Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. I love this verse, the confidence that Paul has in God. He says, this is the mindset of a mature Christian. And if you don't get it yet, God's going to take care of that. He's not worried that this letter is going to be received by the Philippians, and it's all going to go right over their heads. Why? Because God's the one who does the work. God is the one who opens our eyes to Scripture. This verse actually takes a huge load off my back. If I've done a terrible job today and I botched this, God will reveal his truths to you through his scripture. So in summary, Paul is saying he hasn't attained perfection like Christ has, but he strives to get there, not so that he can boast in his works, but because Jesus is the only goal worth following. He wants the church to know that this is active by using the words strain and press. He trusts in God, do the work, and he tells us we apply this together in verse 16, but I'll get to that. So how do we apply this? There's so much in here. We live in a country that preaches self-esteem any way it can. It is tempting to think sometimes that we saved ourselves. Maybe you went to college, or you found the right job, and you've worked really hard to get to where you are. You start to think, I was self-made. That's a common phrase that we hear. On top of that, we are told that we are great just how we are, being our genuine, sinful selves. We need to dismantle this way of thinking. We need to know that we aren't perfect, and we are reliant on him. We need to be careful not to look at our past life with rose-colored glasses, and stay locked in to the reality. The reality that our past life was rubbish before Christ. We owe all to Christ. Because of this truth, we strain toward the goal. And Paul's very clear. That goal is imitation and unity with Jesus. This starts the second we are saved. We live in a space full of competing goals. It can be easy to drift in the waters of this world. We've talked about this idea before here at Northbridge of neutrality, that there is no neutrality. You're either being pulled into sin and culture, or you are clinging to God's truth. Next, we see that our pursuit is active. It affects everything, the way we use our time, how we operate, our resources, our relationships, everything in our lives. Do we think of faith in this active way? How do we press? Or do we drift through routines day in or day out? Are we quick to cut out sin like an Olympian cuts off even the littlest hairs so that they aren't slowed down? The Bible says if your left hand causes you to sin, cut it off. So we strain in life. And we see that this is up until death. Notice that we read Paul say in verse 10 that I might share in his sufferings and become like him in death. This actually confronts a framework in our hearts. What is missing in this? We suffer, we strive, and then death. What's not here? There's no idea of coasting here. There isn't a portion of life about taking it easy and living for self. This is interesting for me personally because I actually, I love passive income. Jesus encourages investment in the parable of the talents. Proverbs encourages leaving an inheritance of some kind for your grandchildren. It can be very tempting to idolize a life of ease. But we have to ask, is that in the text? And the clear answer is that it isn't. We have to push the finish line back further than when our 401k kicks in. That time of true enjoyment is after the finish line. It's on the other side of death. I'm in the construction business, and there's this builder who did top-notch work. He built houses from the ground up, a lot of them literally by himself. As a young guy in the trade, I really look up to him. He's got the knowledge, the experience, and the equipment that I'm looking to get. But this year, he drew a line, and he said, I'm done building houses. He's in his 60s, and he told me, Kevin, I've got to retire from building so that I can go into ministry. I've always wanted to do it, he said, and if I wait, I'm afraid it'll be too late. Earlier in the year, he was getting his finances in order, and he told me, I'll sell my house if I have to. He really just wants to savor this last portion of his life doing ministry. Now he's got a job, uh, or an internship at a church, and um, I think he's the... Only intern I know that's in their 60s. What a great example of striving until the end. You might be wondering, okay, to run the race, to run towards this goal, do I need to get into full-time ministry? The answer is yes. That's what believing in Jesus means. But it doesn't mean that you need to get a paid job with the church. I want to make sure that's very clear. Many of us go through life thinking that we could do God's work if we could only get into that nonprofit all the while missing what God has for us right now with the people around you. Some moments, Paul is preaching. Other moments, he's making tents, swinging a hammer or sewing, however you make a tent. Other moments, he's in prison, but he says, in whatever lies ahead, I press on to be like Jesus. If you're under 18, you have a unique opportunity and you have a limited amount of time with your siblings and your parents. It might seem like forever now, but this is actually one of the most difficult places to do ministry. Why? Because you're in a shared home. You're in each other's space. You're sharing belongings. You see the most vulnerable moments in each other. But I'll never forget my fourth grade Sunday school teacher told us, if you can't serve in your own home, how can you say you're qualified to serve in missions anywhere else? I remember that stung, and I want that to stick with you guys. It's an incredible opportunity as you're in this space with your siblings. If you're a mother, you're not only in this intimate space, but everybody's looking to you for their personal needs. You have the opportunity to serve and imitate Jesus with your family. This is also a really difficult place of ministry. Why? Because everybody's looking to you for all those things. My wife and I are working through this book that there was a Connect event on. It's called Eve in Exile. And the author paints this picture, and it's it's really incredible, on how a mother has this opportunity to lay down her comforts and her body for her children and her husband. Recently, God has taken me on a journey with this. Um, My wife is actually pregnant. I don't know if people know that already. I think it was on Facebook. But um, (laughs) my expectations for pregnancy were that this was going to be some dreamlike magical experience as this baby grows inside of her. And it is a miracle. But instead, in the first trimester, she was sick to her stomach and stuck to a bed. Now that we're in the second trimester, her belly is rapidly expanding, which means lots of pain and uncomfort. As her husband, I don't want to see her go through this. And this was really hard. I started thinking, this is no good. But then we apply this text, and we see this incredible privilege it is to imitate Christ by sacrificing her comfort for this little child. What a great picture of Christ's love for mothers, as mothers. As fathers, we need to have our eyes set on the goal of imitating Jesus. Our biggest mission every, in everything is to shepherd our family towards God. That needs to be at the top of the to-do list every single day. If you're an individual who works, we need to realize that God has given you the work to do with your hands and your lips. The command to strain forward towards the goal of imitating Jesus, it hasn't changed. This can be challenging when you're thrown into an environment where everybody around you has a different worldview than you, but we have to have our minds set on the bigger picture. We are called to suffer with joy on those tough days at work. There's this guy I know in New Jersey who has this high-level corporate job, but he actually chooses to take the bus every day so that he can witness to the people around him on that bus. What an excellent way to press into what God has for us every day. So next we have the application of assurance. Paul says, Jesus has made me his own, even though he isn't perfect. We need to know that this isn't conditional. Paul isn't working to earn the love and righteousness. He's working because Christ has given him righteousness and his love. We often think of grace as something that covers our past sins, but here Paul is showing us that grace covers past, present, and future. Maybe you love what Christ has done for you, but the moment you fail to live up to his calling, you start beating yourself up and you fall into shame. Paul is saying, I know I'm not, imperfect, I'm not perfect, but it's the grace of Jesus that allows me to move forward. Who remembers flip phones? I remember I got my first flip phone that slid and had a keyboard, and I thought, whoa, this is so cool. What I didn't realize as I was texting people is how many words I actually didn't know how to correctly spell. <laughs> Lots of embarrassing moments followed that as my friends are like, hey, that's actually not how you spell that, LOL. LOL. <laughs> Well, what came after that? Autocorrect. Now all of a sudden, you're sending out words like superfluous, within seconds, and you look like a genius. In a way, Christ is like our autocorrect. We strive, but as we do it, we do it imperfectly, but it's the blood of Jesus that covers us and makes us righteous in God's eyes. So lastly, our final application is in verse 16. It says, Only let us hold true to what we have attained. How do we live out this imitation of Christ? We do it together. Paul could have used singular language, but he didn't. He says this is a group task. We are to link arms and grasp this new life together. I think this is something that Northbridge is doing really well. And I feel so blessed to be a part of a church that is excited to get together, to encourage each other in the word, to pray for each other. And Paul is really, he's really encouraged by the unity in Philippi. And so I just want to encourage you in this. Keep doing these things together. Keep each other close to God's word. Keep praying for each other. Keep sharing the needs and loving your brothers and sisters. If you feel like you aren't plugged in, God calls us to be a part of the body. I would love to get to know you, and we'd love to see you in a small group and be part of the church family, to join us in imitating Jesus and holding true to what we have attained. Northbridge, I wanna thank you for sharing in this short study with me. It was a joy to talk to you about God's word. I'm gonna pray over this time that we've had together and we'll end there. God, we praise you for being the author of everything. God, your word is so rich. We thank you for your word. We thank you so much for Jesus. Help us to hold tightly, God. Hold tightly to you. Forgetting our past distractions, Lord, we just thank you for the grace and the blood of Jesus and the church that you've established. God, thank you for working in our hearts this morning through your Bible. Amen.